0: Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from the Harvard Business School academic who coined the phrase surveillance capitalism.
1: It turned out that they wanted to be successful capitalists more than they wanted to have an internet and a search business free of the kind of disfiguring corruption of advertising that they had already anticipated. So they made a dark choice.
0: That was social scientist Shoshana Zuboff talking about the big tech giants Google and Facebook. She came into the FT to talk to me about her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and what we need to do to reclaim the more benign aspects of the digital revolution. Shoshana, let's start with the nature of surveillance capitalism itself. If there is one phrase in your book that I think encapsulates your argument, it would be, quote, There was a time when you searched Google, but now Google searches you. How did this all come about?
1: Well, perhaps if I start with a simple definition of surveillance capitalism, and then we can talk about its origin story, which is also quite interesting. Surveillance capitalism differs from earlier forms of capitalism in many important respects. But here's one way in which it follows the traditional pattern. Earlier forms of capitalism grew and evolved by taking things that exist outside the marketplace and bringing them into the market dynamic to turn them into commodities that could be sold and purchased. Famously, industrial capitalism claimed nature for the market dynamic that it could be sold and purchased as real estate, as land. We did the same thing with the idea of work. Industrial capitalism took the activities that people conducted in their cottages and homes and gardens and meadows and claimed work for the market dynamic to be able to sell it as labor, wage labor. Now in the 21st century, surveillance capitalism follows this pattern but with a dark and unexpected twist it claims private human experience for the market dynamic. It takes our experience, it translates our experience into behavioral data. It pipes those data through its supply chains to its production facilities, which are the computational capabilities that these days we call artificial intelligence, machine intelligence, machine learning, Out of that production capability, out of those factories, are produced prediction products, computations about what we will do now, soon, and later. And these are sold to new markets of business customers who have a keen commercial interest in knowing our futures. That is the essence of surveillance capitalism.
0: Can I just ask you to break this down a bit more? One of our previous guests on Tectonic, Tim Wu, wrote a wonderful book called The Attention Merchants where he argued that the nature of advertising is to grab people's attention. This has been done in successive waves with different technologies, latterly radio, television, and so on. Exactly what is new about what the likes of Google and Facebook are doing? How are they using technology in a qualitatively different way from previous attention merchants?
1: Ah, Very good question. Well, in the process that I've just described to you, this is a new operational structure, let's say. Attention now is only a means to an end. Advertising has always been about grabbing attention, as you say. And it's fascinating to read the early history of the department store as those retailers began to understand the fantastical ways that they could organize the interior of their buildings and their shops to engage the attention of shoppers. So this is a long and illustrious history, it's true. In the case of surveillance capitalism, the key variable is a bit different. It's not so much about attention as it is having an interface with the user that will draw behavioral data from the user's experience. So our listeners have heard of the term sticky. They've heard of the term engagement. So what's happened now is that these attention grabbing qualities in the online milieu at least really are now only a means to a different end. They are a means to the end of having you engaged for long enough so that you're typing things. And from the content that you're inputting, they can draw specific behavioral signals that I call the behavioral surplus. For example, it's not what you write. It's whether you use exclamation points. It's not whether you tell your friends, let's get together this evening for dinner, It's whether you say, let's get together at 6.45 for dinner, or whether you say, let's get together later for dinner. These are specific behavioral signals that are analyzed for their key predictive power what they say about your personality, about the way you make choices, and about the way you will move through your day and your and your week and your future being attracted to certain kinds of opportunities and uh, rejecting others.
0: One of the fascinating parts of your book is that the founders of Google, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, were themselves aware of the danger of an advertising-led search engine. And in fact, they wrote a paper in 1998, which I'll quote a bit of an excerpt from. We expect that advertising-funded search engines will be inherently biased towards the advertisers and away from the needs of consumers. This type of bias is very difficult to detect, but could still have a significant effect on the market, they wrote. That's exactly what's happened, isn't it?
1: That is precisely what has happened. Oh, how the mighty fall.
0: What do you think we can do about that? I mean, as you say, it's not just the Googles and Facebooks who are doing this now. This is extending to pretty much every company, that they're seeing data as a very valuable asset and are trying to datify, as it were, and predict what consumers are going to do. Can you give other examples of where this is happening?
1: Yes. Well, this logic of surveillance capitalism was invented at Google under the pressure of financial emergency, And the quote you read is so telling because there was a time when these young men held those values and no doubt believed what they wrote in their doctoral dissertations, and that was a famous research paper. However, when push came to shove, as Silicon Valley was falling like ancient Rome in the heat of the bursting of the dot-com bubble, it turned out that they wanted to be successful capitalists, more than they wanted to have an internet and a search business free of the kind of disfiguring corruption of advertising that they had already anticipated. So they made a dark choice. That choice turned out to be very quickly, they understood, extremely lucrative. And once they understood how lucrative it was, they could not turn back. So there's a kind of ancient fable here. There are probably many ancient fables that follow this same storyline. Now, we understood by the time Google was IPO'd that on the strength of their pivoting to the logic of surveillance capitalism, their revenues between the year 2000 when they were just barely eking along to 2004 when they IPO'd increased by 3,590%. That was a signal, not only within Google, but within Silicon Valley and this whole culture of startups and apps and so forth, that this was the direct route to monetization. We no longer had to look any further into a more positive form of monetization that would not have the dark consequences of surveillance capitalism. Everybody was now in on this gold rush. And for a while, we were able to say, well, it's Google and it's Facebook. And then it became Silicon Valley and the tech sector. But now the model is literally metastasizing across our entire economies. We see it in every sector, insurance, transportation, automobiles, health, education, retailing. Really, it's difficult now to find a sector where this model has not become the siren song for every kind of business.
0: Now, it didn't have to turn out that way. That comes through very strongly in your book that you make a big distinction between surveillance capitalism as we have it today and the nature of the technology itself. And you stress that the underlying technology can and does in many respects do phenomenal good for society. How do we keep those good parts of what this technology can offer us? but reject the surveillance capitalism and the downside that you see so strongly.
1: Well, you're raising such an important question, John. And if there is one thing for our listeners to take away, it's this. Surveillance capitalism is not the same as digital technology. We're talking about an economic logic... And the surveillance capitalist leaders have, for many years now, tried to persuade us—it's really a kind of propaganda—they've tried to persuade us that surveillance capitalism, the operations that we find repugnant, are indeed the inevitable consequence of the digital form, that networks always are going to have extreme winners and losers— that digitalization means that everything is recorded and everything is surveyed and so forth. Nothing could be further from the truth. And we have a window Between the introduction of the Internet and the World Wide Web, which really brought the Internet to the public in the late 1990s and later in 2004 when surveillance capitalism became publicly understood, there was a window there where there were many fascinating innovations in what we now call the smart home, in what we call telemedicine, all of which proposed robust models for using the digital to empower human beings to democratize knowledge in ways that did not involve surveillance, that did not involve the social relations of the one-way mirror, that did not rob us of decision rights over the privacy of our own experience, that did not take away our autonomy and did not introduce these pernicious effects on democracy, which we are now learning about. So yes, we could have gone another way, and even at Google itself, as a fledgling company, there were many other business models on the table being actively considered in the years 1998, 1999, 2000, even into 2001, until they discovered that they had just opened Pandora's box, they had found the gold inside, and no one had the will to close it.
0: Now, one of the questions that I'd like to ask you is how good are these prediction machines? I mean, you describe incredibly well how they have come about. And Facebook and Google and others clearly have a great interest in telling advertisers that their targeting and their understanding of consumer behavior and their predictions are incredibly effective. But is that true? Are they good prediction machines?
1: Well, let's ask ourselves, what would be, be the data that would suggest to us that they are good prediction machines. One form of data is that Google and Facebook and other leading surveillance capitalists, Microsoft, has gone toward this surveillance capitalist paradigm, and so has Amazon. Let's look at their profit earnings ratios. Let's. Look-
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: Look at their market capitalization. Let's look at their growth. These companies have become the most powerful companies on earth on the strength of this economic model. It's
0: not quite the same as saying that their model actually works, is it? If people buy into the belief that it works, then that's enough to create a lot of profit and a lot of market value. How are you convinced that what they that do actually are, does? I don't
1: think that people are actually just buying into the belief. I think they're buying into the revenue line and the revenue line is extraordinary, and it grows enormously year by year and quarter by quarter. So these revenues, if you look at the breakdown, and it's not always easy from their reports and from their balance sheets to look at the breakdown, but when you study the breakdown, you see that in these companies, as much as 90, more than 90% of their revenues are coming from these futures markets where advertisers are laying bets on a piece of future human behavior, specifically where we are going to click. Now, more and more, these predictions have gone beyond online behavior to where we will shop and where we will eat and what services we will consume in the real world, what routes we will take through the city or where we will have our Sunday run or at what point in the week we reach our maximum of social anxiety and thus will be most vulnerable to an immediate buy button on our phones that offer us some kind of product that is considered to be a quote, confidence booster. So the predictions and the prediction markets now saturate not only our online but also our offline experience. And I think the evidence of their acuity is there in the revenues. Advertisers and other players in these futures markets are not stupid. They may be greedy, but they are not stupid. And the fact that these revenues keep growing is, I think, prima facie evidence of the effectiveness of this new kind of juggernaut wealth created exclusively through trades in the future of human behavior.
0: Okay. I'd like to take the argument on a bit, because in the book, you make an argument that surveillance capitalism is in effect morphing into a new form of power, which you call instrumentarianism. Can you explain that to us, please?
1: Yes. This is so important, and I'm so glad you raised the question, because it's easy to get lost in the thicket of what is the economic logic and so forth, and really lose sight of the fact that One of my main motives in writing this book was first to discern and name the economic logic, but then to draw out its consequences for our society in the 21st century, and indeed our emerging information civilization, which is the combination of our societies, because we're all experiencing similar things at the hands of surveillance capitalism, no matter what city or country we live in. So this is a really, really big issue. So one of the things that has happened in the evolution of surveillance capitalism as competition has intensified, specifically competition around these prediction products, is that they've learned that the most predictive behavioral data comes from actually intervening in our behavior. And always outside of our awareness, always under the conditions of surveillance, because they don't want us to know what they're doing, but tuning and shaping and herding our behavior in specific ways that point us toward the commercial outcomes they seek. Now, of course, the medium that they're using to do this is the medium of digital instrumentation. People talk about it as the digital ubiquity. This is now way beyond our laptops or our desktops. This is our phones. This is all the devices that exist in the real world, the sensors, the cameras, the microphones, every product that comes with the word smart or internet enabled, every service that comes with the word personalized, which includes your digital assistants, folks, So this is now an intense, thick surround of digital instrumentation. And this is the medium through which surveillance capitalism works to shape our behavior. If we just zoom out a little bit and think about this... This has become a global architecture, a means of behavioral modification that operates at the level of the population, economies of scale in behavioral modification. And the
0: extreme form of this is in China, which you describe as the apotheosis of this new form of power. Yes. Tell us about that.
1: All right. Well, let me just say for a moment why I call it instrumentarianism, because what is this power one has to ask? What is this power that comes from a commercial form toward commercial objectives that can actually reach into our behavior and shape it? This is an extraordinary and unprecedented new form of power. So a lot of times people say, oh, this is Big Brother, or oh, this is digital totalitarianism. But it becomes clear that it really is not because totalitarianism, as many of our listeners will be mindful, was a violent form of power. It worked on murder and terror, and it sought to control us from the inside out. This new form of power does not work like that. It really doesn't care about what we do, who we are, or what our problems might be. It only cares that whatever we do, we do it in a way that it can capture the behavioral data from our activity. So if we are tragically sad, it doesn't care, but it very much wants to have the data that leeches from our anguish. Similarly, if we are joyful, it really doesn't care. It simply wants the data from our joy because those are powerful sources of prediction.
0: And how does this play out in China in terms of being a form of power?
1: So this is not totalitarianism, it is a new instrumentarian power that works through the instrumentation of the digital milieu and turns our behavior into an instrumentalized now means to commercial outcomes. So if you think that I'm perhaps being too exaggerated or too extreme in my diagnosis and description of this new instrumentarian power... We look to China and we have a moment of real contemplation because in China this power has now been annexed to the authoritarian state and in this convergence of instrumentarian power that was developed in the Chinese internet sector, in Tencent and the other so-called private internet firms in China and the massive behavioral data caches that they have collected The authoritarian state sees now a way to achieve its political and societal aims. And so increasingly, it has essentially annexed the internet sector to the state, circumscribed the private functions of those companies, and claimed its data as the property of the state. This is now called the Chinese social credit system, And what the Chinese authoritarian government is learning to do is to say, for example, we want social behavior in which every citizen pays their debts immediately. And let's say you go to buy a train ticket and you want to be in the first class cabin on the train. You will be denied access to a first class ticket if the data quickly show that you have outstanding debt, debt that you have not paid. And until you pay your debt, you cannot travel first class on a train. Now, this
0: is a very chilling vision that you're outlining. But you also make it clear in your book that it's not game over, at least in the West, that there are things that we can do about this. This is a societal democratic choice as to where our societies head. What do we do about it? How do we prevent these very dark futures from emerging?
1: I want our listeners to know that this is not game over, as you say, John. On the contrary, I think the game is just beginning. One reason why it's so important to make that distinction, we're talking about an economic logic. We're not talking about the digital itself. We want the digital. We want the digital to enhance and empower our lives. We want the digital to democratize knowledge, but we want it free of this form of capitalism. Our societies, and I mean the UK, I mean the United States, and I mean the entire Democratic West, our societies have experience mustering the resources of our democratic institutions to tether the excesses of raw capitalism to our democratic principles, and to the well-being of our people. We did this to end the Gilded Age. We said children will not work in factories. We said unfair labor practices will no longer stand. We said wages must be just. We said collective bargaining and the strike and trade unions are sanctioned democratic institutions in our societies, protected by the rule of law. We said these things, and we ended the Gilded Age, and we used democracy in the Great Depression to once again tame the excesses of a broken, destructive capitalism. We did it again in the post-war era, and now, for a new generation, the work confronts us again. Democracy is not something that you build and it stays wound up and perfect forever and ever throughout the ages. Democracy is like a wind-up clock and it falls to every generation to pull out the tools of democracy to wind it up again. And that's the collective action. That's the new awareness of our publics that these practices are intolerable, that they make claims on our individual sovereignty and they erode our democracy in ways that are illegitimate and it is up to us to first of all become aware and that sea change in public opinion puts pressure on our elected officials and our elected bodies and we move toward new law new regulatory regimes, and very importantly, John, the new forms of collective action that will be our 21st century forms of what the trade unions and collective bargaining were for our parents and our grandparents in an earlier century.
0: And are you hopeful that that new form of collective action is coming about? Are you hopeful that the American political debate in particular is heading in your direction? I mean, clearly there is something of a backlash taking place in Europe and governments, And the European Commission in particular are trying to regulate and fight back against what you see as the power of this big tech. But where is America going to go? Do you think you're going to win the argument? Are you going to stimulate new outrage about these intolerable practices, as you call them?
1: I believe that America and Europe are going to go in this direction. I am extremely hopeful. I think that when we see the outrage over the revelations about Cambridge Analytica, for example, which, by the way, used the entire playbook of surveillance capitalism and just slightly pivoted it, again, from commercial to political outcomes. Everything that Cambridge Analytica applied was simply a ho-hum day in the life of an exemplary surveillance capitalist. So we see the outrage there, and I hope my book will be at least one contribution to this new era of naming that is so essential for taming, But the response to this effort is, I think, just another indication that almost everyone, John, senses that something has gone deeply wrong, that this new Internet world for which we had such high hope has somehow gone dark at our expense. We know it, we feel it, but we don't know how to name it, and we don't know what to do about it. And once that power is instantiated, once we learn how to name it, and get some ideas about what to do about it. I don't think there's any stopping this thing. The age of surveillance capitalism will end. May it be a short age, as was the Gilded Age. I am certain about this.
0: That's a very good point on which to end this conversation, but thank you very much, Shoshana. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, do let us know what you think of our show you can email us at tectonic@ft.com, at ft.com. And if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer.